welcome to the Pepsi and Tepic. My name is Bart van Buchem. I'm a Spain specialized physiotherapist uh, and one of the LePup team. With me today, Melanie Noel, one of our, well, you've been previous speaker. Uh, uh, I think it was 2020, I guess, mm -hmm. probably. Um, so excited to have you back um, here. And um, we're going to talk about your work and exciting uh, projects you've been on. Um, I'd like to give you some just an opportunity to introduce yourself. Is that all right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, uh, yes, I'm uh, Melanie Noel. Um, I am an associate professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, and, um, you know, my job is mostly to do research. So I have a chair that protects my time uh, and I mentor sort of the next generation of pediatric pain researchers. Um, and my work is really focused on um, what kids remember about pain, how important those memories are, how they can be changed. And uh, also this connection between trauma and pain and how pain and, and trauma in a parent uh, can sort of confer risk or resilience uh, in a kid um, uh, over time. So this intergenerational transmission of pain, I'm really fascinated in. So that's who I am, where I am. Uh, and I will say that the La Pub talk I gave in 2020 was the most fun talk I've ever given because you guys gave me the permission to go rogue. Uh, and I got to talk about everything I was excited about in a non-traditional way. So thanks for that and happy to be back. Oh, that's great, Mel. That's great feedback. So, all right, Mel, um, we just, according to your last, last talk with us, um, we talked we talk, you you brought up the influence that parents have on children's um children's later children's experience and even um memorizing that experience in a way that it's influencing their pain um so since the last two years so what will be exciting findings if you like or knowledge that you that really been rocking your world over the time in that area yeah so much bird uh yeah so you know i think whenever we think about kids and kids childhood is where often pain starts right so that's why we should all care about it even if we don't work with kids um is that we are learning that you know, where a parent is in terms of their own pain and their own mental health is one of the most powerful predictors of how a child will cope with pain, whether they'll develop pain problems and whether those pain problems will persist, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not to blame parents. To me, that's really exciting because it says, wow, like there's something that we can do. Um, but I will say that what we're learning is that like, even the trauma and pain that a parent experiences early in their own childhoods, what we're learning from our basic science colleagues is that that can confer risk through epigenetics, through behavior, uh, for pain in even an unborn child. Okay. So we're learning all about risk 
we're learning that this risk can even be transmitted throughout generations. Um, but what's really exciting is we're learning about resilience. So um, I'll use the example of trauma. You know, my work is really interested in trauma and early adverse childhood experiences, abuse, neglect, um, you know, household dysfunction. Um, we are finding that yes, you know, ACEs, uh, trauma confers risk uh, to kids, but actually there's antidotes to that. What are the antidotes? Uh, community support, the ability to talk to family members about difficult emotions, um, attachment, social support. Um, so I've become really, really what's rocking my world, like you said, to use your language, is this idea of um, kind of going beyond just the parent and the child or the clinician and the person with pain uh, and going broader into the community and to the broader, um, you know, societal, cultural influences, um, how our systems influence how we talk about pain, how we understand pain, how we experience pain. Um, and so, and how can we sort of, you know, um, work within those systems to foster resilience? Um, so I think as a psychologist, we've talked a lot about like, what, where does the risk come from? Sort of really focused on the negative. Um, and there's a lot of negative to focus on, but I'm really getting excited about these broader structural influences. But parents for sure play a huge role, not just in their own pain and mental health, but you know, a new kind of finding from our lab is just the way that parents talk to kids after painful experiences can actually reframe their entire, the child's entire understanding and memories of those experiences. So that's what's getting me really excited. So can you, can you, um, uh, two questions there. So what, how you, would you define resilience? And can you give an example of such an experience of a child that um, has been exposed by the language of the parent, which could um, um, strengthen or change that that narrative or that even that experience itself. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So you can't have resilience without adversity, mm. right? Um, so I think I'm really glad you asked that question because um, to show resilience means to, you know survive, thrive in the face of adversity, right? So, you know, these ideas of optimism, uh, benefit finding, uh, post-traumatic growth, like all of those things uh, sort of require um, the salty to experience the sweet, right? Um, uh, and so that's how I define resilience. It's sort of like in the face of risk, how does a child um, fare well? How does a child cope well? How does a child develop well? Um, what's an example of this uh, in terms of how parents' language can influence a child? Very simple. You know, we did a randomized control trial where we followed a bunch of kids who had surgery uh, and we taught their parents to talk to the kids in a way that um, emphasized anything positive about the experience. Um, that corrected their exaggeration. So if the child was like remembering it as being really, really bad and scary, like worse than it actually was, we taught the parents how to kind of bring it back to the real. Um, and a really important thing, you got to talk to a kid in a way that boosts their confidence in their ability to manage pain. So instead of just saying you were brave, you know, you'd say something like, 
you were brave because, you know, you took deep breaths and, you know, it was hard, but you, you got through it. You, you know, talk to yourself, you watched your video, whatever it is, like teaching the kid that they could, that they were resilient in the, in the midst of a painful incident. And honestly, Bart, talking to a kid, we taught the parents how to do that. Talking to a kid in that way, um, you know, two weeks after a painful surgery actually led those children to develop more positive, you know, realistic memories of that experience. So, you know, I mean, this is not out of step with pain neuroscience education or, you know, all of the work that you guys have have contributed around the power of our words and our explanations and our framings. Um, and so that's an example um, that's I think is really tangible. The other thing I'd say is I'm doing some prevention work now um, with high risk kids of veterans who have a lot of pain and a lot of PTSD. Uh, and one thing we're doing is teaching the parents how to talk about difficult things in a validating way. And we have enough research to say that if a child feels comfortable to talk to their parent, um, whether they have pain, anxiety, trauma, depression, if they can go to their parents with difficult things and their parents can listen and validate their experience, that is a huge antidote too. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds really simple, but it's actually, I think, quite profound um, for that reason. I think it's very challenging. So, so if we can bring it to the clinic, if, if that's all right. So you would be, so most of our, well, my, my work focusing on maybe adolescents, but most of them grown like adults. So if they do have these experiences, which are likely like 20, 30, 40 years ago, what, what will be your, um, yeah, when I'm trying to be very specific. So what, what is something you should be aware of? in the clinic. So seeing a grown up person, what is a sign of someone who's likely be, let's say, having been exposed by language or behavior of parents that is probably influencing their experience at this stage right now uh, in a not, let's say, not in a good manner? Yeah, great. Um, and I guess um, great question. I guess I'd like to extend. It's not just parents, it's clinicians, yeah, yeah, other yeah, people, yeah. right? And, but you raise a really important question. Like, I'm not sure we need to go and dig into the childhood trauma of a 40 year old who's there for physio or, you know, psychology, you know, I'm not sure we need to do that. I think we have to be aware that, um, you know, all of the experiences that this individual has had, both in their childhood, but also, Bart, what's really important, and we're learning in the area of diagnostic uncertainty and whether people buy into the diagnosis or they think something else more serious is going on, um, is every clinical encounter that that person has had prior to seeing you. You could be the most woke, you know, you know, like, you know, I believe you, you could say all the right things. Um, I think what's really important clinically is to know that they're, they're on the journey to get to you. Um, they've had a lot of um, invalidation, stigmatization, um, messaging, language 
that has influenced their current understanding and more importantly, their ability to buy in to what your understanding is and what your explanation is. So to me, I'm not sure. I think, I think if there's power in understanding that our pasts influence our presence. Um, but I think clinically, what's what we're learning is really important is how they've navigated and the messaging they've gotten from other clinicians along their journey to get a diagnosis and a, tr a, a treatment for pain. Yeah. So would you, you, would you consider like you, you proposed for a kid, like the best way to go is preparing a kid by telling them how good they cope with the experience. My answer is really driven from people with lived experience that have, you know, people I know and friends and patient partners who have said like they they'd been through 15 to 20 years of invalidation and, you know, like, um, you know, uh, you know, I don't believe you kind of messages and the power in that one clinician that really listened, not just listened, heard, showed that they heard validated. So, you know, that's the beauty um of what we can provide um i think we need to kind of get our egos in check and realize that just because we're we have a lot of credentials and we know we know what's going on and we we buy into something um that's not enough an explanation's not enough a diagnosis is not enough um but the power in how we validate in how we relate to the individual listen and hear um, can make a big difference. And yes, as you're saying, like how we encourage, how we reflect, um, you know, that can undo a lot of doing of mm. previous um, providers. In an adult with um, experiences in their childhood that have been part of the today's pain experience, how does it, how does that fit in the treatment plan? How does that how that, yeah, how should it be emphasized or being part of the, the strategy, if you like? So what will be your, your ideas about that? Yeah, great question. And this is where I think um, there could be discipline specific answers, right? Mm -hmm. So as a psychologist, That's right. yeah, you know, I yeah. am trained to conceptualize that, that my case conceptualization of a patient, client, a person with lived experience matters for how I structure my treatment, right? So I don't know, like I would ask you, is that part of your training? Like, is it important for you to understand? Like we go right to birth. I mean, we go right to like, you know, early life factors and all of that. And, and we really fundamentally believe as clinical psychologists that 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 conceptualization of the origin and manifestation of a problem matters. Um, so that's why I believe childhood matters. Um, do you like, is that, is that part of your, like, do you agree with that as a physio? Well, yes, in many ways I do. Yeah. But your, my focus will be less focusing on the emotional. So let's say that's not, not totally true. I don't think we can distinguish those, but I think it will be. So if the, the experience, the painful experience occurs in the first, let's say if it occurs the first time on their ninth birthday, for example, I think it's very relevant for a physio to know, to understand what the context. So, so how they conceptualize 
the event, what happened, why it happened, what information did you get, what didn't they told you, what, how did, how well, how did it felt, um, and how does it relate to today's pain? And sometimes people will tell you it's very changeable over time. It's been very many variation, but sometimes it's at exactly the same. It's like it's like it happened yesterday, and I found that. I found it amazing. So when these experiences are, if you're able, people able to um, memorizing in a, in, and sometimes they're memorizing very specifically. So that could be another question. So if someone is memorizing a, a very specific moment, it could be an accident, it could be surgery, it could be any traumatic moment, like whatever about whatever emotion emotional trauma which goes with a physical experience so from your psychologist background what will be yeah the most likely way to go is that something you just it's just is it just a reconceptualizing and therefore the pain memory changes which which sounds really simple though <laughs> it sounds simple i i think it and i i won't I won't ask this question of you, but I guess I'd ask of the listeners, anyone who's been to therapy, you know, and received psychological treatment would know and has experienced the power of understanding the origin of our current suffering. Mm. Right. Um, and oftentimes we go back to child, not to be Freudian, but oftentimes we go back to childhood. We go back to our, you know, attachment figures, our parents and understand and the power in understanding where things come from, I think is really important. Um, I think, so I think, um, you know, it's like trauma-informed care. Part of trauma-informed care is understanding the impact of early life trauma on an adult, mm -hmm. you know, and it's thought that if we understand that as clinicians, as practitioners, we will we will interact differently and more effectively with our patients even if we don't talk about that trauma right so i think there's benefits of the early understanding the early life influences both in how we as clinicians conceptualize the problem we can tailor our treatment um, but also it influences our empathy and our understanding and our behaviors to our patient um, so, okay. So that's the understanding. What do we do with it? Right. Um, so it depends on, you know, if, if you're a physio, I, I guess what I'm saying is like all of the work that we do shows that like, not just movement, not just medicine, mm -hmm. you know, that, that if we treat pain as this thing to be fixed through, you know, mechanical or, you know, neurobiological, you know, means it's not enough. We know that. That's why I love being in the field of pain as a psychologist, because I'm like, whoa, look at the placebo effect, right? Like expectancies, language, context, you know, all of that makes such a vast difference, no matter what we're doing. Um, so I think, you know, I, I firmly believe that we, if we understand a, um, a patient's uh, previous experiences, and how they make meaning of those experiences in relation to their pain and their life with pain. Um, that will affect how we use our language, how we harness the social context, how we 
um, communicate around the interventions that we give. So, you know, it's a bit of a soapbox, but I, I really, I believe it, it's powerful um, and, and that we should use it. And the work that's really kind of spinning me now in this area is in diagnostic uncertainty where the patient's origin story, which is in their past, right? Of why their pain developed um, is so important. How they've been validated or invalidated in the past. If we don't go to the past, we can't sort of uh, understand the barriers, understand the facilitators and sort of use that uh, with the patient as we're, you know, you know, uh, administering our interventions. So yeah, yeah, I think we need it all. And I, yeah, I agree. Totally. <laughs> I think it, it doesn't, it, it's not exclusively for any, any pathology or people with the experience of pain. It's very, it's a very common thing though, but it's hard to implement. Right. So I think that's where you touched on as a psychologist or as a physio, but I think it's, very much how much can you go how far can you go as a professional including being for example what i really like is the the uh, we talked about with laura rathbone about quite a bit by being psychology informed physiotherapist so I, I like that and i would love to see well physical informed psychology for example or, or yeah so i'm a psychologist who's really well informed about the somatic experiences so and i think it goes both ways and then not necessarily i'm just doing the psych stuff and i'm only doing the physical stuff it would be such an amazing and it would be very beneficial for patients i, I reckon that what i've heard from people lived experience i just want to have one person i can trust and i don't need like three or four i just need one one person and i don't care whether it's a psychologist or a physio or ot yeah yeah i love that you know wow that's the first time i heard about that how ego centered for a psychologist not to have heard the flip that we should be physically informed and i love that i mean the thing is like not everyone is receptive to psychology not everyone's receptive to physio right like if we could get on the same page back to the diagnostic uncertainty stuff. If you're given one message to my patient mm -hmm. and I'm giving another different message to your patient, we share a patient, we've got a problem, right? Yeah, um, challenging, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'd be so fascinated about, um, you know, what that would look like, Bert. What would physically informed psychology look like? Wow, that's a good one. So that's my, this is my last question. So if you if you can invite two people in your garden right now, I saw the barbecue standing just behind you. Two people to invite you would love to have a chat with um, professionally, and it doesn't have to be someone who's there with you or even alive. Um, but choose two people, and why do you choose these people to sit down and have a have a chat? Wow, that's a big question. I know. It's not um, big, I'm just asking you. <laughs> I'm really, really getting more and more interested in uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, sort of structural, systemic inequalities, and sort of thinking broader beyond how I was trained as a psychologist. So I would say mm -hmm. right now, um, I love my the people in our field, and I love you know, but I, I'm ready to get immersed in other ideas. Mm. Um, 
someone I'm really following very closely is an author named Ajoma Aluo, who is a, um, she's Nigerian and she lives in Seattle and she's really, um, really kind of stirring me up. She's written some books, New York Times bestselling books around anti-racism and stuff. Um, and I'm really, um, I would love to be in her orbit and to think about, you know, uh, she gave a keynote at a, at a talk uh, I listened to uh, virtually called the Light Festival. Um, and she, uh, you know, was applying an anti-racism lens to public health. And I thought, wow, we need more of this in pain. Um, and so I'd love to invite her over. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to invite her over. The second person I'd love to invite over, I have invited over. She's coming in September. An amazing colleague named Idia Thurston, again, in the area of uh, also Nigerian. She lives in Texas. She's um, uh, a PhD doing a lot of really cool work in health disparities. Um, and uh, so this is really Bert, what I'm immersing myself in uh, and really trying to think broadly about how can, how can I as a researcher um, studying pain and suffering and trauma address these big pressing societal problems? How can I use my power and my platform uh, and my, you know, um, profession to really advance other areas that really um, stem from marginalization. Um, so that's who I'd invite over. Luckily, one out of two is coming in September. Wow, you get one um, down, <laughs> one to go. Yeah, maybe we'll tag Ajoma and see if she'll um, come visit me too, or I could visit her in Seattle. But really amazing women um, mm -hmm. who have been really shaken up, not just my professional thinking, but also my personal thinking and sort of the mirror work that I do on myself. And um, yeah, that's, that's my answer. Uh, thank you for that. Thanks for sharing, Mel. That's been, that's wonderful. Thank you, Mel. This has been amazing. Uh, I think we've touched on some really, really interesting topics and um, your work has been really appreciated but, um, by many uh, followers of us and um, um, we will keep in touch. For sure. Yeah, and can I can I just say, Bert, thank you so much. But this work is not mine. It's really driven by these amazing graduate students and uh, staff and like postdocs in my lab. So yeah. I'm I'm a messenger, but definitely want to acknowledge these amazing um, people who are really driving the agenda here. So thank yeah, you so that's, much. Uh, I, I appreciate that. We appreciate that because I think that's um, not to be missed and. Uh, uh, thank you for doing that. Again, thanks a lot, Mel, um, for joining in your time. You've been generous and um, see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.